Well, welcome to Life on Earth. Thank you so much for joining us. Have we got a special event for you? Now, as you see, if you're watching the video version of this and not just the podcast, I don't have Amy with me today. Prior obligation, that United Kingdom, UK, BST, British Summertime, Daylight Savings, they didn't sync up this week. Fans of ARC UK are already used to this. Everything's happening an hour later. In fact, my schedule got screwed up too. But I have a special guest today who has graciously rearranged her schedule to meet our schedule. As you know, Life on Earth is a show about life on Earth. Ayn Rand famously described her philosophy as a philosophy for living on Earth. And we emphasize, put this stuff to work, put this stuff to use. Don't just spend all of your time, and little of your time, don't spend all of your time arguing politics and, and dystopia. No, use these ideas. Well, nobody knows better. Nobody knows better how to use these ideas and the ideas of psychology and psychoepistemology far beyond philosophy than our guest today. Jean Maroney, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to Life on Earth. Hi, thank you very much, Robert. I'm delighted to be here and delighted that uh, we were able to do it even with the time change. Well, I appreciate that. It is so good to have you on, especially because I got to see you speak at Ocon, at the Objectivist Conference this year, and live in person. We didn't get shut out because of COVID. We got to go to Austin, Texas, and you did your, th and it was extraordinary. I wrote down in a previous blog post, my favorite talks of the conference included Gina Corlin's talk on self-parenting, mm -hmm. and Ben Baer's talk on, actually he did two related talks on pride, and your talk on central purpose. It was an extraordinary talk, um, because it it not only clarified that for a lot of us, but it blew up a couple of a couple of myths that you might not be aware are as common as they are. What was it that that prompted you to give that talk? And and can you give us a, a short description of what the talk was? Sure, sure. Well, if you may recall, the Ocon in twenty twenty was supposed to have purpose as its theme. And the reason that I suggested giving, and so I proposed this talk, this talk was supposed to have been given in 2020, and then we decided to do it. It wasn't on the short list, so we did it for 2021. The reason I chose this aspect of purpose is that I have coached a lot of people on central purpose. And it is so, it's such an important thing that people don't understand the mental value of a, a central purpose. It is, you know, it's a long range goal to quote, or approximately quote Leonard Peikoff, a central purpose is the long range goal or end that is the primary claimant on one's time, energy, or resources. Primary claimant, it's the thing you schedule first. It's gotta be a long range goal. It's the thing you schedule first. And as a result, psychologically, it organizes your entire value system. It organizes, it helps you set your priorities. And you need that if you don't want to be pulled in a million directions all the time. So it's not just, oh, you need to be productive. It's that for your happiness, for your long-term happiness, and to see your life adding up to something, you need that. So it's an area that I had been coaching people on. I did work on it myself. Even if you know your direction, if you don't get the central purpose formulated right, it can send you in circles instead of where you're trying to go. And so it was, uh, I thought it was an area that I could add value. Let's put it that way. 
Outstanding. Now, now I'm going to jump ahead just a little bit to say that if folks are aware of the work you do, if they're aware of thinking directions and the resources you share, the talk on central purpose ties in beautifully because, because everything you do is the practice to that theory. But there were a couple of kind of myths exploded during the talk, which you might not even be aware of. One of the fascinating things to me was that you described a three to 10 year time window mm-hmm. for a given central purpose, that there are some people who are born with their central purpose and it'll stick with them all their life. But for most of us, that we should be reevaluating that periodically. And I think, I think a few people were surprised about that because a lot of us, not necessarily me, but you know, a lot of us, um, you know, had that, had that, that sense when we read the fountainhead. Right. And we looked at Howard Rourke or we read Atlas Shrugged and, and you know, Dagny Taggart wanted to run the railroad from day one. That, yes. that our central purpose is something, that, some inspiration we discover as teenagers. And then we spend the rest of our lives on that one thing. And your talk was so much more grounded than that. Well, Did, that did comes, you always have that insight or was that developed? I, I needed to learn that by coaching real people because I not everyone has a calling. So what you would describe, and I wouldn't say you have it from birth. I have a calling, but I have it from age 28. And when I, I saw something, I said, I'm going to fix this. And I'm going to spend the rest of my life doing it if it takes me the rest of my life. And I, it, that's, so I did have one, but it, it happened as an adult. And a number of people see that. They see there's something going on in the world. They want to fix it. They get a calling. But you don't have to have a calling. You do need to have a central purpose if you want to be happy. And the, so in talking with people, you know, if you have a calling, it is not very hard to find with a, a few, you know, probably a few weeks of reflection, you can see what your direction is and that everything goes in a certain direction. It is not a big surprise if you have a calling, but a lot of people don't have something that's that big. And they're actually very troubled if you say, oh, well, you should have a calling. It's like you're supposed to like use some kind of a microscope or something in their subconscious. You know, where is it? I can't find it. But that is backwards. The way that you develop big values is through action. And to have something that is, in fact, all encompassing, integrating your whole life for 30 years or 50 years, it's a very big value and it becomes a big value by action. And if you're like me and you made a decision in 1990, I had to do all that action to make it so that I actually was motivated to work on my central purpose. I had the thought of it, but it took some years before I had enough value creation in my soul so that I was as goal-directed as I needed to be. For other people, they start with some values, but it's not the one, they have three or four and they pick one and work with it And then if you work with something for three years or 10 years, it becomes a much bigger value. And it's it's, the idea that it's something in your psychology that you're gonna just reveal, I think is so misleading and and hurts people because they can't find it. And they think there's something wrong with them that they can't find it. They need to understand this is something you built. I thought that was invaluable to the people who have that challenge. And and I won't say that was a big challenge for me, but there's some of that. I think there's some of that for a lot of us, you know, in between 
you provided Leonard Peikoff's definition and then discussed that in detail. In between that and the end of the talk, which is incredible practical action for how to determine and then apply your purpose, was that middle bit that I just found wisdom, just, just really valuable. I'm, I'm really looking forward to, I know that there's private access available to these videos through the end of the month, and then some of them will be released to YouTube for free, and some of them may be available as a package, but whichever way that goes, I'm looking forward to whether it's public or paid because I'm gonna be recommending how to set and apply a central purpose. Everybody should hear that talk. And I really I've, appreciate that. And I've listened really to the rebroadcast because I was at Ocon. So I got to watch it again the other day. We drove up north to see Leonard, or excuse me, to see Howard and Brooke at uh, Northwood University. Oh. And uh, it's a great talk to listen to during a two hour drive as well. You know, you stop right. part way through when you get lunch, take some notes and write down. Oh, yeah, I've got to remember that. Fortunately, I already had my notes still available. Great talk. Highly recommended. And I, I especially appreciate because I, I did. I wasn't signed up for Ocon 2020, so I didn't know that purpose was mm -hmm. the purpose, <laughs> the uh, theme. Right. And uh, but it tied in great with OPAR, just yep, taking Larry Peikoff's definition and then the whole purpose of OPAR, the general, the, the whole philosophy. Because again, the, the premise of my show is use this philosophy. Yes. And uh, so I especially appreciated that. Um, that uh, that was amazing. The before I get to the specifics of thinking directions, because we've mm -hmm. got to talk about these resources that you've made available. Um, but do you have any other books or resources you recommend on that theme of purpose or uh, generally on psychoepistemology and, and motivation mm -hmm. and effectiveness? Mm -hmm. Well, when I, I mean, when I recommend, when I help people work through a central purpose, one thing, one person I recommend is Barbara Sher, S-H-E-R. She has a couple of books. One is if I could do anything, I could do anything if I only knew what it was. And the other is wishcraft. Uh, I could do anything if I only knew what it was is recommend is there's an actual book recommendation on my website. There, there are a number of book recommendations on my website. And so that's, if you're interested in central purpose, I think she's got a lot of great ideas about finding what makes your heart sing, which is something, even if it's only a three-year goal, if it's a long-term goal, it's got to make your heart sing. It's got to be something that you are excited about. This is not something dry that you just dis, you decree. It needs to be tied into something that you care about already to some degree. Um, so that's on central purpose. On other things, yeah, I've got a lot of book recommendations up there. I actually made a list. Uh, I made a list for these. Let's see. Well, actually, one thing I'd say is a lot of my work. There are three major figures who have influenced my work. Number one is, of course, Ayn Rand. Number two is Marshall Rosenberg, who is a psychologist who did work on nonviolent communication, which is, I do some stuff in communication, but he really influenced my value orientation. He, he, uh, his work on communication, I've actually applied to productivity and to uh, self-awareness, and his book requires philosophical detection, but it's really original work. And it's very helpful. And then the third big influence on me is F.M. Alexander, who is about body awareness. The Alexander it's, Technique. The Alexander Technique, yeah. And uh, the best book on that is a book called The Actor's Secret by Betsy Politan. That is uh, on my website. If you search Alexander Technique, you get a description of that. And these three, the, 
what Rosenberg and Alexander have in common with Ayn Rand is they all believe in mind-body integration. They all believe in the importance of concepts in order to manage your mind. And that is very unusual. That's interesting to me too, the, uh, the, that common denominator of, of mind and body, mm -hmm. which to me is fundamental to any reality orientation. Yes. Uh, we're living in the world and we're, we are, I think Christopher Hitchens, when he was aware that he was passing away soon said, you know, it's amazing to realize not that we have a body, but that we are a body. And, uh, and that integration that, that I've really seen more in the last 20, 30 years than when I first got into objectivism within the philosophy. People mm -hmm, really mm -hmm. are, are respecting their, their physical health. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't see as many overweight or cigarette smoking objectivists as I used to. And yeah. uh, so mind-body integration has, has, is now, of course, and that's yeah. good to see. Yeah, it is good to see. It is good to see. The yeah. uh, Barbara Sher. Uh, resources in particular have been recommended to me before and now I'm thinking well I haven't gotten around to picking that up but I guess I need to and then we'll probably end up doing an episode uh, on the works mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. outstanding in fact it's funny that takes me back to when we first met was I guess that's 30 years ago now 31 years at conceptual conferences Tamament. Tamament. yep yeah in the Poconos yes first objectivist conference I ever went to Oh, me, well, not, not me too, but the first one I went to as an objectivist. That's right, because I heard you tell Don Watkins a story. It took you quite a while to decide, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, it was seven years, and I'd been to the previous conference in 89, and I think uh, that was where Leonard Peikoff was talking on the moral virtue talks, which are on uh, independence, justice, and the evil of the initiation of physical force. And I needed those independence and justice sections from OPAR before OPAR was published to really sort out objectivism. That was great timing for me too, getting those first five chapters in manuscript yeah. form. Uh, yeah. That was great fun. Yeah. It's funny, I was young at the time. I really couldn't afford to go to that kind of conference, but I couldn't resist the opportunity to meet Leonard Peikoff. I missed Ayn Rand by just a few years, and I thought, this guy might retire or, you know, God forbid, pass away. Who would know? 31 years ago, he's still in great health and a fine mind. And But right. you don't know. So You don't know. But I well, met you and, and Anne at my conceptual sister. conferences. Mm -hmm. Well, Anne had insisted I go to the 89 conference. She basically dragged me there. I had given her Atlas Shrugged. She'd, she'd read everything within a year started going to conferences, dragged me to the 89 conference where I was very uncomfortable because I wasn't an objectivist, right? I wasn't completely convinced and everyone there was convinced. So I felt a little, you know, nervous. But then, and I wasn't gonna go to the 90, I was like, no, I'm not going to the 91. And then I became, I became convinced over that year and I re-looked at the, I looked at the program. It's like re reality, reason, ob objectivity. The nature of man is like, I have to, I have to go to this it's conference. It was an amazing conference, actually. I can only imagine that, especially having met Anne, what, what that would have been like at the time where you would say to her, you know, you should read this book, Atlas Shrugged, it's really good. And then she reads it and says to you, you don't realize how good this is. You don't realize how right this is. It was funny too, because that was my reaction not to go back to me again. But when I read The Fountainhead, I thought, this is great. This is great. Mm -hmm. This is really good. 
And then when I read Atlas Shrugged, it went from this is great to, oh yeah, this is true. This is right. <laughs> so I, I have my own version of that same progression. That was an extraordinary <laughs> conference, meeting Larry off for the first time and, and meeting you and your sister for the Thank first time. Thank you very time. much, Robert. Likewise. It, and uh, also, can I just say one thing? Yeah. You know, all the dinners, all the breakfasts and dinners were included. And we were in, do you remember that big dining hall with the tall ceilings? Yeah. You could sit at a table for eight people and have yeah. a conversation and you could hear everyone at the table. And we met so many people at that conference. I missed that format. I really yeah. missed that format. Yeah, I had breakfast with Leonard Peikoff and family. Got to meet young Kira. Yeah. And a yeah. little, little, that was quite a year, quite a conference. And uh, I have to go through my Polaroids. Polaroids. Oh, yeah. <laughs> How did we take photographs back then? I'm sure I had uh, something better than Polaroids, but. Uh... <sighs> oh, dear. So I, I, I do want to jump a little bit forward mm -hmm. to, um, I, I know you have an engineering background. Before you started working on, on motivational uh, psychology and, and success training, and I, I don't even know how you, the short version of describing what you do, because anybody who's familiar with your resources, you've got essentially the, the manual for thinking success. And, uh, but, but that was a change. You started out yeah. as an engineer. Yeah. Um, was that mechanical, electrical? Uh, my training is electrical engineer. And I was basically a system engineer, which meant that I understood software and hardware and electro optics was the, was the thing that I was actually most specialized in. So I worked on these very complicated systems called wavefront sensors that had a lot of parts and I understood how all of them worked and could make sure that they would all talk together once they were built and test them and run field experiments with them. I've done a little engineering. I'm an undegreed engineer, a Microsoft okay. engineer. Great. Um, so I can imagine that would be a lot of fun, mm -hmm. very interesting. And it would certainly you know, capitalize on your intelligence, but you decided that wasn't your passion. I hadn't chosen a career by a passion. I chose engineering because I was good at math and science and literally everyone in my immediate family has an engineering degree. My father, everyone. yeah, my father had four degrees from MIT, three of them in engineering. My mother had an engineering degree. My sister had an engineer from MIT. My sister had an engineering degree from MIT. My brother, you know, the black sheep of the family, he got his undergraduate from Carnegie Mellon is PhD from Berkeley. He's the only one of us with a PhD in engineering. Didn't go to MIT. The black sheep. Yes, right. <laughs> so four of you. Well, if, if there's any genetic component to intelligence, that explains something. Four people, all engineers. Yeah. And so were were they surprised when you when they found out that engineering was not going to be your your profession long term? Well, um, well, my parents were wonderful. They were very, very objective. They treated me as an independent entity. I think my father was definitely disappointed, disappointed in the sense that he thought psychology was hot air, which I thought psychology was hot air. I didn't take a single psychology course as an undergraduate. The, the thing that got me interested in psychology was uh, some talks that Ed Locke gave at the 89 conference, where I thought, oh, <laughs> this, is, this is a talk on goal setting and talk on intelligence. 
oh, this is actually an interesting topic. I didn't even know this is what psychology was. But of course, Ed was very logical, not the kind of, you know, hoo-ha that you get in a lot of psychology courses. It's an actual science. I thought it was a soft science, science which means right. not a science. Right. But um, the reason I switched was I'd been in engineering for six years. And well, actually, that's actually not relevant. The project that I worked on doing these wavefront sensors, I actually worked at a telescope facility at Kirtland Air Force Base in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where we got the first laser guide star adaptive optics system working. And what is a laser guide star adaptive optic system? It's you shoot, it, you take the twinkle out of stars. And the way you do it is by shooting up a laser, laser, measuring the scatter from it, and using that measurement to correct for the turbulence that is basically making the stars twinkle. And this is, this is a state-of-the-art technology in 88, 89. And we did the first field experiment to show you can actually do this, and you can actually make a relatively small telescope have better viewing than a large telescope. So it was, it was a brand new technology. And it was really exciting to work on it. I was actually the program manager for the wavefront sensor portion, which was a critical part of the technology. And the guy running this, his name is Bob Fugate. And he was amazing to work for. He is the closest thing to an Ayn Rand productive dynamo that I've ever worked with in real life. And he, people worked harder for Bob Fugate then they'd, I, I worked harder for him than I ever worked any other time in my life. He clung, it was an Air Force base, right? So people would interview, they would, these lieutenants and captains would come and work for him as part of their rotation. And then they'd find that they'd have to retire from the Air Force in order to keep working for him. So they would do that. So the best people would just retire from the Air Force and work as contractors to stay with him. He had this amazing team of people. And it was really, it was incredibly fun. It had never been done before. I really loved that. Did that test your resolve when you decided that uh, you wanted to change fields to, to, to leave well, that kind of boss or that kind of? Uh, yeah, well, what I realized, so how long an answer do you want from this? <laughs> I just, I'm loving let this me, story. Let, so let go on go. as long as you like. Okay, let me tell a little bit more. So. I thought, well, I want to be like Bob Fugate. So that meant I needed to get a PhD, right? He was a head of a research lab. He had a PhD. All of the leaders all had PhDs in, he was in physics. Um, so I thought, so I went back to MIT and took another graduate class as a special, I had a master's at that point. And I went, I was still in Boston. I was based in Boston. So when I was back in Boston, after being at the site, I took a graduate course in optoelectronics with Professor Fujimoto. And I worked my little tail off. I put in, you know, well over 20 hours a week studying for that. And I got a B. a B. And as my father would tell you, if you get a B in graduate school, you don't belong there. If you want to get a PhD, <laughs> you need to get A's in all of those graduate classes. And I thought, you know, what is this? So first of all, it was the first time, it's actually the only time in my life <laughs> that I thought, you know, I'm either smart enough, I'm either not smart enough 
or I'm not interested enough to do this. And I was surprised because I thought I was interested enough. It's the only time I've ever doubted my intelligence. <laughs> but I realized mm -hmm. something was wrong there and it didn't make sense for me to get that PhD. And then the other thing happened. So I have some like, you know, my first reaction was just go on in engineering. Uh, we went and we did Gen 2 and I was back at Albuquerque. And in Gen 2, we had taken down the whole first system. We then built a somewhat better system and there was, uh, everything was a little bit better. And there were now two lasers, one green and one orange. And, you know, I didn't find that nearly as interesting as doing the first time. I mean, not nearly. And I looked at Bob and Bob was just as excited. He was wildly passionate about it. Could we get this little orange laser, which was just this tiddly fiddly thing. Could we get this to help? And I was like, wow, I should be as passionate about what I'm doing as he is about what he's doing. And it was at this exact time that I became convinced about objectivism. And then Tamamint happened. And at Tamamint, as you may recall, because you were there, uh, the, we'd all gotten a letter from Leonard Peikoff saying, here, here are the first five chapters of OPAR, read it, mark it up, bring your questions, I'm going to answer your questions. Right. And I read this book, I thought it was amazing, I had very few questions. Do you remember what questions you asked Leonard? Oh, yes. So I had a very few questions, I had a few. And remember, do you remember how upset he would get when people would ask questions that weren't on the right section? He was, in fairness to Dr. Peikoff, he was, was he was actually ill. No, he was he was ill. Yes. So he he was he. Uh, it was really he left early to because he had a medical situation. Yes, it was a so, tough year for him. And he had he had very clearly said, ask questions about this section, and people were just asking random questions. So at a certain point, I, there, no one else was asking, but I had a question that was on that section, so I asked. So my first question, I'm going to give you the parody of it. Uh, well, no, I'm going to give you the parody of the answer. Thinking and introspection are two different things. Going off in a corner and thinking is, is uh, I, I was like, can't you have... It, it, why did I, I don't even know how I word it, but basically I didn't know the difference between those two concepts. I thought, okay, all right, I was just confused, no problem. Second question I asked, here's the parody of the answer. If you can't tell the difference between a picnic blanket and a table, I can't help you. <laughs> now, this, now this is the man who had to go through years to get the last bits of rationalism yeah. out of him. If it hadn't been a difficult year for him, I think he would have had more sympathy. He might have, he might have, but, 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 but here's to my credit. Then shortly later in that same lecture, someone asked my real question, which is what is the role of the function in a definition? And what I took from that, from the fact I'd asked two <laughs> questions that were definitely weird, you know, imprecise something. And I really hadn't asked what I really wanted to know, which is what is the role of the function in the definition. I concluded there was something imprecise in my thinking. And I'll tell you, you know, that was a real shocker. I mean, I was not used to being a person. I, I was used to being a person who, you know, 
I wrote the reports. I was the communicator. I was the one who could be clear. And in uh, science and math, that was true. In engineering, that was true. But in the humanities, it was not true. And that was a pivotal experience in my life. And that combined with the fact that I was looking for my passion, I basically took a year to figure out, well, what do I want to do? And it's probably not engineering. And at the end of that, I concluded it was psychology and specifically the psychology of thinking was what I was interested in. Now that makes me curious then, although, although I really, I'm so tempted to spend time on that example. Because <laughs> I, re I remember thinking the introduction to objectivist epistemology was yep. the answer to the problem of induction and why in the logical leap are they talking about causal links. What's the problem? Yeah. It's like causality part is just an add-on. That's not the important bit. The, the function doesn't matter that much. And uh, I, I've since learned that that I've, I've been simplistic in my thinking on that. But but I am curious, what was your, if you don't mind telling me, what was your next move? You're, you're a successful engineer mm -hmm. and you decide, okay, I, I want to make a shift. For yeah. a lot of people, that's a real challenge, especially because I think the average person, I have a little experience with this, we tend to grow into our situation. Yeah. The, the obvious one is that we grow into our income and making a shift can be a challenge to be able to take two steps backwards, to go three steps forward. What essentially was your, your next, how, how did you approach this new, this new purpose? Well, I, first of all, I gave myself some runway, which I think is very, very important. So the other thing that was happening at the same time, so we're talking, this was a big time. I also met Harry at that conference. Um, so the, I'd been working on a different project, which I really didn't like for, re, for managerial reasons about this other project. And I thought, you know, I don't want to be work. If I'm not, if this hasn't changed by September, I need to be out of this job by the end of the year. And then I have this big aha, that's in June. Then I have this big aha in July at Tamman. And then come September, the job isn't better. And I'm like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Uh, I, I, I'm now thinking about changing careers. I uh, <clears throat> don't want to go interview for another engineering job. I, 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 I need some time I, I, because I, I don't think I would commit to working for more than a year. I'm like, what am I going to do? Well. To my, the, the way I was able to get through this is that I am a long range thinker and I thought that in September. I thought in June I needed to have make a change if it hadn't changed in September. In September I thought it hasn't changed. Oh my God, this is what I need. How am I going to do this? And I started thinking about this. And in October, uh, one of the people who was still out in Albuquerque called me and said, Gene, I need to go on a 10 month leave of absence starting in February. We're going to need someone to cover for me. And I said, I'll be there. I never would have, I, I had actually resisted. I had absolutely refused to move to Albuquerque. I, I lived in Boston. I liked living in Boston. I would go out there for business trips, but I would not stay out there. I had refused to move to Albuquerque. That's why Dave was there. But when I realized what I needed was, I didn't want to go get another job, but I could go to Albuquerque for 10 months. I realized, okay, that's the solution to my problem. So I went to Albuquerque. I went back on this project that was out there. And I gave myself that as the time to figure out, well, what is my next thing? And it was during that period I had philosophical consulting with Harry. That was how I got to know Harry. My husband is Harry. Consulting. Yeah, I got his, when I met him, I got his business card. 
P Harry Binswanger, philosopher, philosophical consultant, and uh, uh, figured out what I wanted to do. Took my first class in psychology ever in Albuquerque and decided, yep, I'm applying to graduate school. Took the GREs and uh, basically stayed there, extended that a little bit until I was ready to leave for graduate school. So, you know, it, it was, part of it is giving yourself the time to, to think about it, to figure out how to do it. But I'll tell you, the other thing you said, how do you leave it it's outside your comfort zone? Mm -hmm. When I drove away from the Starfire Optical Range the last time, I was crying and I was terrified. And there was an arroyo, if you've been out in the West, you know, a, an arroyo is a dry riverbed. And this was out 12 miles out on the base out. It looks like in, you know, the uh, Roadrunner cartoons with the mesas and everything. That's yes. what Albuquerque looks like. Okay. That's what New Mexico looks like. And there's, when you're coming back to civilization from the, out from the range, there was this particular arroyo you would come up and it felt like you were going over a cliff. And I remember tears pouring down my eye, my face as I'm coming up. It felt like I was, it felt like I was going over a cliff. What was I doing? I was leaving these people I loved. Yeah. I was leaving something I was good at all because I had this idea of where I wanted to go. And but, but, yeah. but under, I'm just curious underneath the, what have I done feeling? Did you feel the pull though? Did you feel the value as yeah. well? I, I, um, I knew that I was happy having been an engineer as long as I had, and I would not be happy if I stayed in engineering. And I was, you know, at that point, it was a fascination with, with, with all things mental. And, and this is an area I thought I could do some original work. And that was very exciting to me. So the passion had been started. And that was what gave me the courage to take those steps. Outstanding. And my, my favorite advice in that regard is that that's why you want a, uh, I'm losing the uh, word for it, but that's why you want three months salary sitting in the bank or yes. why you want, you want resources yes. available. You can stretch three months salary out into six or 12 months. If you have to, if you realize, oh yeah, as much as I love what I'm doing, this is not what I should be doing right now. Right. Right. To have flexibility and independence in that situation. Yeah. Now, I, I have to take a moment because we are on the Ayn Rand Center UK channel to yes. remind folks that if you want to contribute to the Ayn Rand Center UK, you can put in a super chat. We've got a couple of them already. Mary Aline is in for $2. And thank you very much for that. Mary Aline is, is uh, somebody that we know very well, both on the channel and on this show, and very much appreciate that. Also, Anthony Monahan has a question for you and contributed okay. $4.99 in Euro. Will the James Webb Telescope tell us anything about our own solar system? Have you kept track of that? Do you, do you oh, have an answer to that? Because oh I don't. Oh, me, oh, my. I am sorry. I do not know about this. Oh. See, this is one of the things that I realized. I was not that interested in astronomy and, and these other things. So I have not kept up on that, and I, I can't tell you. I, I know the passion for the science and the engineering, but you, but, but I, too, am not a, on the latest with regard okay. to astronomy. So neither one of us have an answer for that. If Amy was here, she might have an answer. She was out doing uh, astronomy photography uh, a few weeks ago up north. So she might have an answer. Maybe we'll tell you on the next show. Thank you for the super chats. Uh, Mary Aline is in for another $2 and says, that's tremendously courageous, Gene. 
And uh, I agree with that. I've, I've only done that a couple of times in my life. I used to be a fast food restaurant manager and left that to go into electronics, left that to go into IT. And uh, it's hard. It's really hard it's to walk away scary. from, good, especially to walk away from good money. Good and say, money oh. and good people. Yeah. yeah. And, and things you love, things that yeah. you, know, well, you love. Doing. And, you know, so this actually to, to tie back to some other things that I teach, you know, value orientation. Yes super critical in every situation. And, and I didn't have this worked out, but one of my concrete examples of a value orientation is as I was crying and going over this cliff and saying, how can I leave these people? Bob Fugate, Jim Spinnerney was my direct boss. I mean, I love these guys. I mean, yeah. not, we're not talking people, romantic love. And, and we're talking about people. Yeah. totally inspiring. I mean, they were such a big impact on my life. And I said there and then, this is not the last time I'm going to see them. And I went back. Well, that helps. Two years later, when they did groundbreaking for the next telescope, I went back. Uh, it was uh, in 2006 when Bob retired. And I saw the whole vision of how he had seen the vision of how laser guide star adaptive optics would revolutionize the science of, psych of, of, of astronomy. He saw that, you know, five years before I knew him. And I was in the early part of that. But there's a whole story of the next 14 years that I heard when he retired. And I went back again when I needed fuel. Uh, it was about five years after that. Maybe, actually, it was about seven years ago. So it was more than that. And you know what Bob told me? I was talking to him about my business. He said, yeah, you always got to be marketing. I heard a whole different side <laughs> of Bob. The way that he had been able to do what he did is he was marketing to the Air Force, you know, top people of why they should be paying for this telescope and this project and this and that's how he was able to revolutionize what he did and it, it, you know yeah the stereotypical genius who has nothing to do with the uh, people in the home office and can't relate to them and instead he's engineering this relationship and making sure it's going to go the way he wants he's uh, one of the best managers i've ever seen he, he insulated us i mean this is this is the air force people this is a bureaucracy, right? He insulated us from all of the politics, all of the bureaucracy so that we could all just work our little tails off. And he's the one who fought all those fires. And I, I really appreciate, you know, I, you learn things in hindsight about people that you met when you were young. He was really something. And he was absolutely passionate about the science. He was, okay. I can tell a lot of Bob Fugate stories. <laughs> well, I, I love that. A hard scientist like that is also willing to get his fingers dirty with the soft sciences to make sure that things happen. Yeah, yeah. And I, yeah. I, I admire that greatly. I can imagine okay. why it would be difficult to to leave to leave that kind of situation and that kind yeah. of person. Mm -hmm. Outstanding. But you did go on to to do what I would call groundbreaking things yourself in these so-called soft sciences. Except in your case, they're they're just enormously practical. Um, and because I know we lose you at the top of the hour, actually, I think we're also losing our engineer at the top of the hour. I, I have to, I have to share or have you share information mm -hmm. about thinking directions. There's, sure. there's, there's obviously years in the middle here and, and how this developed. In fact, that would be one question is, well, what was the, I don't know if there's a short version of it. What was the road to thinking directions? Um, and then I want to discuss thinking directions as a resource and, and, yeah. and my, uh, my recommendations in that regard, which I'm sure you have too, but sure. How, what, is there a short version of the story yeah. from, from driving through New Mexico to 
this amazing resource that you've put together? Yes, it runs right through the Ayn Rand Institute's Objectivist Graduate Center. OGC. Yeah. So I went to graduate school, uh, and at, and I, I started dating Harry just after I accepted Carnegie Mellon Graduate School for Psychology. So I had a long-distance relationship with him, and at the end of my second year, or towards the end of my second year, they concocted this idea of the Objectivist Graduate Center, which was going to be in person in New York City. And I was all over that. I was like, well, and at first it was going to be only philosophy majors who could be in. And then they, there was a whole debate about whether they were going to let people in other subjects in. And I was, you know, I was like, yes, yes, you should let other graduate students in. But I didn't, uh, I didn't realize the OGC was in New York City back then. It was in person, live. There were three years of an in person, live, full time program. It was an unrepeatable experience. And Basically, the first year I was at Carnegie Mellon, at the end of the first year, Harry asked me, well, what did you learn? And I hadn't learned that much. And the second year was excruciating because it was clear to me that what I was learning was bad methodology. And then at the end of the second year, I got a leave of absence to go to the OGC. And within six months at the OGC, I had learned so much more about how the mind works from Harry and, and Peter and Leonard, Peacock. I mean, they were our three faculty, Leonard Peacock, Harry Binswanger, and Peter Schwartz were the faculty for this full-time program. <laughs> I mean, it was amazing. Now I learned psychoepistemology from Harry Binswanger. It doesn't yeah. get any better than that. Right. And they weren't, there wasn't a class on psychoepistemology, but Peter was teaching writing and Harry was demonstrating his method. He was, you know, this was quite soon, after, this is 94 and 95. And so Opar had only been published in 91. And so on, this is like Harry's third read through Opar, and he's going through it paragraph by paragraph, teaching us how to think about things and what we can learn by reading that amazing text. And you, you, we learned how Harry thinks. We, that's, we really learned how to think from Harry, and we learned how to analyze logic from Peter. And those are the foundational skills that I needed. And within six months, first of all, my advisor was saying, well, you know, if you're coming back, you need to do this and this and that, none of which I wanted to do. And also I had concluded it had, it had take, it really took me the full time at the OGC to let go of the mistaken methodology that is used in experimental psychology. You know, the, the whole method, it, it's not based on introspection, which is what the basic observation for psychology needs to be introspection. And it took me about two years to completely get out of my head and be able to think fresh for myself on this topic. And the OGC gave me the grounding in objectivism and also uh, straightened out my thinking. And I decided that I wasn't going to go back. I decided I was not going to get the PhD because I thought it would mess up my mind. And I had no regrets about that. That was a very controversial. There was actually a, a one of the big fights in the upper echelons was over whether people should be encouraged to go to graduate school. And I'm one of the ones who was became convinced at that point not to continue in graduate school, which is a difficult decision because you know a PhD is a calling card within the objectivist movement too, and I don't have one. So then, what was I going to do? I decided I'd work half time as an engineer and do psychology on the side. And I, it turns out that's very difficult to do. 
So after we got, after I married Harry, um, I started working six months as a, six months full-time and then taking six months off doing consulting work. And at the end of the first six months off, I started teaching the skills that I'd learned at the OGC. And, oh, that's what happened. I started teaching them. Now that was after we got married. And did you, did you start your own business at that point or were you working for another organization? I, I was, I was married to Harry. He had the objectivist forum mm -hmm. and he, we figured out that I didn't need to work, that he basically supported me to get started. And then later on, in effect, I was the HBL administrator. That was my day job for many years. So the objectivist forum. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I don't know exactly what I would have done if I hadn't been in that very fortunate position. I don't know what I would have done because it took years for me to develop this material. Well, I didn't make, I, I didn't make a lot of money for a long time. I suspect you would have had to do some multitasking to uh, yeah. bootstrap yourself. I wouldn't be as far along as I am now. Yes. There's no question. Right. So it's so, 2021 and you have turned this progression into thinking directions. Yes. And, and if, if anybody listening, as we, as we get into the quarter of the hour mark here, if anybody listening has not yet gone to the thinking directions website, or signed up for the mailing list. And links are in my show notes, both on Facebook and Twitter. And I've posted them all over the, and I've recommended them before. I really you appreciate that. You absolutely have to get on there. Um, it's, 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 it's interesting. I was listening. I thought of you earlier when I was listening to one of Tim Ferriss's latest podcasts. Tim Ferriss is always fun mm -hmm. to listen to. Mm -hmm. And he has on people who make me feel like an idiot. <laughs> I, I know what my IQ is and I don't know what these people's are. I don't know if those numbers exist. And he has on um, Naval Ravikant, and they're talking about Web 3.0, the next version of the World Wide Web, and how it's, you know, it used to be static web pages and banner ads, and then it was social networks and selling eyeballs. And Web 3.0, you just put everything out there. Mm -hmm. And all the content is free. And if you put everything you've got out there, the people who have money to spend and have opportunities for you will come and find you. And when I go to your website, Gene, Thinking Directions, and I see uh, top 10 thinking tactics, and it's a list of the top 10 thinking tactics that you recommend to people. And every one of these is gold. Every one of these 10 is a gem. And you make the list, but then you write a whole essay explaining each one of the 10. And then, at the, <laughs> and then at the very bottom, you mentioned, oh, by the way, these are 10 out of 50 that I teach in this. And here's, a, here's, a, here's a PDF you can get for $20 that will give you that list of 50. I have the thinking lab. Well, maybe you can tell folks, what is the thinking lab? Because what you offer, and again, you mail these out every week, what you offer for free is amazing, but Thanks. you offer so much more. What is the thinking lab? Yeah. So the Thinking Lab is a membership program. So it's an online program. When you sign up, you get access to a number of resources, which include it's it's up to over 20 courses that I've developed, you know, since 1998 when I started this. So these are on topics like um, 
I mean, there are some of them are basic thinking skills, thinking and introspection. I call those the basics. And then there's goal setting, and then there are communication skills, their productivity skills. I've got I've got at least five in each of these. And then there are what I'm calling right now precision skills. You could also call them essentialization skills. It's the stuff I learned at the OGC, concretization, condensation, definitions, which is more esoteric than the main thing that I'm teaching these days, but it still exists on the thinking lab. And I, I look forward to getting more people to, to, to go through that work in time. So there's, so that's one thing you get is you get access to these self-study courses. So they're all recorded or, you know, in some written form. Then there are two class, two new classes a month. And, uh, uh, at least one open Q and a a month. So every other month I do what's called a thinking day. Turns out if you're going to go through one of these study courses, it's helpful to have me around to answer some questions. So we schedule a thinking day every couple of months. You can go, go through a class, come in during the day. I'm on the bridge for four hours. So you can come in and ask questions about anything. Uh, and then there are shorter Q&As also. So that's basically it's a do-it-yourself program, but with access to these courses that can help you, like with central purposes, developing a central purpose is one of the courses. Um, developing a scheduling infrastructure is one of the courses. There's a whole range of them. I'm now offering the upgrade is something I've, I've finally figured out what the all-in version of the Thinking Lab is, and I'm calling it Launch. I've been doing this Launch 21 or the Labor Day Launch. It's an eight-week program where you come in, you set a major goal you want to achieve in eight weeks, and you come in. At the beginning of it, we start with a thinking day. We make sure your goal is formulated correctly. People do not know how to formulate goals. You need to formulate the goal so you can actually achieve it and get satisfaction as you're achieving it. So you get coaching on that. You set the goal, and then we go for eight weeks. Every day, you get an email in the morning to do thought work about your initiative. Twice a week, there's a coaching call. So if you're having any trouble, you get help on the coaching call. And I've now done four of these. We're finishing the fourth one. Literally, we had the last coaching call earlier today for the Labor Day launch. They are so wildly exciting because it is exactly the support people need to be able to make get the right goal and get moving on it. And the secret is I make them set a four-week goal so that when they run into unexpected problems, they can still complete their goal. And people really don't want me to do that, and yet everybody that I get to do that is glad that I get to do that because they do run into unexpected problems. And so like on the third week and the fourth week, the emails that they're getting for daily thought work are things like dealing with old baggage. On, on the first week, it's figuring out when I'm going to do this. On the second week, it's figuring out the conflicts with all the other things that have now gotten pushed out. And then on the, you know, on the third week, it's, it, it, or the fourth week or whatever, it's dealing with old baggage or dealing with deadlines. Come the fourth week, you were supposed to finish by now and you're probably feeling bad about that. Okay, let's think about that. How do you manage your motivation through this entire process? And so I'm actually really excited because the Thinking Lab is a wonderful program and it worked great for people who were total self-starters, but to get people into it, they need more help and I finally, I figured that out. This, the launch program is an amazing program. The next one starts on December 31st. It's the new year launch. Timing couldn't be better. Yes. And it's 
again, just hearing the list of topics up through the first four sessions is extraordinary mm -hmm. to me because these seem like the big challenges that people don't even always know that they've yeah. got, such right. as, you know, what, what baggage, what chip of my shoulder have I been dragging along all my life and how do I find out what that is and then sort it out and then do something about it if I can, let the rest go. I obviously I need to be signed up for this as well. I'm on the list, <laughs> but, I'm, but I'm not in the advanced labs and, and I need to be there. I think everybody needs to be capitalizing on these resources. As I say, just going through your blog, the, the items that you send out in your weekly mailings is, I mean, there's a whole book there that, that could all be published, but it's amazing that it's all just out there. Extraordinary resources. Anybody who hasn't capitalized on that needs to do that yesterday. Thank you, Robert. Happen. Again, links are in there. We, we're really coming up on a hard, a hard stop at the top of the hour. And I want to make sure I didn't miss anything that you wanted to talk about in particular, because I've, I've got so many notes here. Um, <laughs> And, and a few of the things we've covered about your history, what, like, like what is your role in HBL? Because I know you're actively involved in that. Um, but I didn't want to get too much into Harry Binswanger uh -huh. because um, it's, it's got to be interesting to a corporate audience when you go out and do seminars that um, you, you may mention, oh, yeah, there's this gentleman, my, my husband, Harry Benzinger, he's a philosopher, and everybody's like, yeah, Jean Maroney's amazing, and yeah, yeah, she's got this husband who's a philosopher. <laughs> and then you go talk to the objectivists, and every, you know, we're all... And I'm Mrs. Harry Benzinger, right, <laughs> <laughs> which is which is fine. I'm very happy being Mrs. Harry Benzinger. Well, I have the impression um, that you really enjoy helping manage HBL. And well, it's an, HBL itself is, is a pretty extraordinary resource, even though it's more yeah. of a forum and a conversation, but... The conversations are at such a high level, it seems almost silly to describe it that way. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I was the administrator for HBL for years. And it, it's an achievement for me and my business to have hired Susie Sheridan is the HBL administrator now. And she really does all of the routine stuff that I used to do. She does, which is so wonderful. You know, learning how to delegate is one of the things if you want to build a business, you need to learn how to delegate. And it was a major project to the, the previous upgrade of HBL was done so that we could ha have an administrator and not have me do the admin because of the, some technical issues. And then we needed to find the right person and get her trained and get it to work like clockwork. And it does now. And there's actually another HBL upgrade in the works, which I'm, I am involved in because I still have a lot of uh, knowledge about it. But I think actually after this upgrade, I'm going to be very much just, in effect, Harry's sidekick on Meeting of the Minds. Um, and, and to tell you the truth, my goal is to get back so I'm actually writing more on HBL. For me, the whole challenge is writing output. And if I could write more, I would, I would post three or four times a week on HBL. But it's just, it's a writing output issue for me. And um, uh, so I'm... A big fan of HBL, but I have a very small role these days. Well, I love the idea that you're making it more self-maintaining or or somebody yeah. else maintaining yeah. so that you can do more of what you're so good at. Right. That was really my day job. For many years, being HBL administrator was partly how I, you know, that was my day job while I was building the Thinking, thinking Directions resources. Well, we got a bit of your origin story. Everybody has to tell their objectivist origin story. Mm -hmm. 
the next question that I love to ask, and uh, I kind of warned you in advance, but I don't mm -hmm. know if you if you have an answer ready, or maybe this is a softball for you. But as of 2021, because you've mm -hmm. got so much going on and so much coming up, but as of 2021, what are you most proud of? I am most proud of the theory of motivation that has come. It's a psychopistemological theory of motivation, which I think is revolutionary. Uh, I, this is all this stuff on values that I've been writing about on the blog, on the thing, on the newsletter the last uh, few months. Uh, new view of self-esteem involved in this. It is part of the reason the launch is so successful is that this has all gelled this year into uh, a coherent and rational theory of motivation, which was, let's see if I can explain it in two sentences. So many people, when they, when they have a motivational issue, they think something is wrong with them. Oh, I'm second-handed. Oh, I have a, um, uh, defense value. Oh, I have a, you know, I'm neurotic or whatever. That characterization of your psychology as being a problem, I think is actually part of the problem. And that when you can actually see that, well, at this moment, I have this goal and I'm having this say secondhanded thought that is making me nervous about taking the step that I want to take because I'm too nervous about what people are going to say. The issue there is here now, how do you manage those emotions to see what is in fact in your best interest? Not, it's not about the history. The history, all the history does is it helps determine what emotions come up because your emotions are just alerts to what based on past programming is your best guess of what the relevant issues are. But nothing stops you from, first of all, uh, figuring out what's in your best interest. But second of all, finding the, the, the gold in even an emotion that you think is irrational is, a, is in some distorted way coming from a rational value. And when you can see every emotion that way, motivational problems become really non-problems. And it is so freeing compared to the standard way that people think about motivational issues. I, I'm wildly excited about it. One of the biggest challenges I have is finding that intersection between, you know, somewhere between choice and will and free will and what we want is, I feel like, I feel like that's where you live. And, yes. and that's where the answers are. You know, it's we, the strategic we, use of volition to achieve your long-range goals. That's the subtitle for my book. Outstanding. We find so many programs that will tell us how to get where we want to go. And then we do that for a while. And then we find a new one that's even closer. Okay, this is going to help me really do what I really, really want. Somewhere in between all of and and reasonable programs make perfect sense. Somewhere in between that and and the real core. I think is, is what I get from your materials. And obviously I need to get more. Everybody out there needs to get more. <laughs> Thanks, I would love Robert. to get more of an interview with you, but we're running out of time. This has been outstanding. Thank you so much, Jean. I know everybody listening and from the chat, I can see people are getting, getting a lot out of this. 
when you go to thinkingdirections.com, when you go to the resources I've posted links to, including Jean's past talk at Ocon, the 2019 talk is on YouTube. Her previous mm -hmm. conversation with Don Watkins is outstanding. When you look at those resources, if you don't already know Jean's work, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Jean, thank you so much for being on. And I look forward to doing this again. We'll get you that on would be with great. me and Amy. That would and, be great. Uh, I don't think we could ever run out of things to talk about, but thank you so much for everything. It's been an outstanding discussion. Thank you so much, Robert. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thanks for your enthusiasm. Thanks, Gene. And that has been Life on Earth. Thank you so